This reading is from Luther's Works, Linker Edition, Volume 14, page 307, the 23rd Sunday after Trinity, the second sermon of Matthew 22, 15-22, found only in Edition C, and it says in one pamphlet print. Now we'll read the text. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. They brought unto him a penny. Saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The subject matter in here is the counsel of the Pharisees put to naught. Page 308. This gospel in itself is plain enough and easy to understand. Its contents are noteworthy, especially because of Christ's answer to a practical question and its doctrine. First of all, our attention is directed to the intensely wicked, bitter, and venomous persecution of Christ and his word on the part of the Jews who schemed to attack him with shrewd and deceitful questions. For these villains and base characters would gladly have put him to death as one who had wearied them beyond endurance, must be gotten out of the way, although they could find no cause for impunging either his doctrine or his life, eagerly as they sought to do so. They studied all sorts of devices and ways to catch him in his words and condemn him, which they kept up until God allowed them to vent their spite and finally crucify him. That class of people will obtain what they strive for, even to their own hurt. They had their time of probation and could have repented when the Son of God appeared in their midst, but they flatly refused to accept him. God suffered them to go their way and fulfill the measure of their sin to its utmost extent, in that they murdered him who came to save them. Their end was destruction and obliteration as a nation. The enemies of the gospel are no better in our day. They would put Christ out of the way if they could, and thus it will be even to the end of time, with the same result. Amen. See now how they scheme and succeed. The wisest and most learned leaders assemble, put their heads together, and decide on one of the many shrewd plans by which to cause Christ's death. Their wise counsel is as follows. 
If we weigh and balance the situation, we find two ways to seize and accuse him. First, if he opposes Caesar, he can be charged with conspiracy. And if he is considered a conspirator, we'll have him in our control as one guilty, like a thief and robber who would despoil the emperor of his majesty and crown and who is worthy of death, with which the law punishes such a crime. Should this scheme fail, we can have recourse to another one, namely to prove him to be guilty of robbing God and have him condemned as a blasphemer. It would be regarded as a still greater crime to prove that he robs God of the honor due him and misleads the people under the cloak of serving himself. For should he say we must pay tribute to Caesar and acknowledge him as our sovereign, he would detract from God who alone wants to be this nation's sovereign and who has chosen us from all races to have no king but him. This also would condemn him to death. Which way, therefore, he may answer, he'll be caught and fall into our hands. Does he favor Caesar? He robs God, and if he decides a favor of God, he declares against Caesar and makes himself a conspirator. Such is the counsel of those wiseacres and petty saints who resolve to lay hold of Christ with all law and authority as an enemy either of God or of Caesar. Not that they cared so much either for the one or the other, but in order to carry their point. They were indeed anxious enough to free themselves from the yoke of Roman power, causing frequent insurrections and drawing abundantly deserved executions upon their own heads by hundreds and thousands, and finally suffering entire destruction as a nation. In like manner they were before God these and evildoers in that they corrupted his word and persecuted its pure doctrine, so entirely submerged in these two vices were they as to have become doubly worthy of death before God and before Caesar. They manifested their wickedness moreover by attempting to catch an innocent man as if guilty of their own sin, pretending to be most pious saints before God and most loyal subjects of Caesar. The Jews were used to this from time immemorial. They had treated their prophets and many godly teachers in a similar manner. Afterwards did the same to the apostles, so that it is no wonder if they treat us in the same manner. And what have the apostles are we either to complain of in particular since they did not spare their Lord and God? The world cannot do otherwise. It's under the devil's control, reveling in robbery and rebellion, yet at the same time imputing these crimes to Christians as if they were sinners above all sinners. And see further how they play their trick and seek to entangle the Lord so that they may not fail in their plans. They do not put the question abruptly, but approach him with a neat introduction of flattery, as though they had the intention, best intentions, were really in earnest about the matter, 
They praise and humor him with smooth words, for they think he is human and a preacher like themselves, who thus loves to hear such flattery and praise. And they say, You're a true teacher and an upright man. What you say and do is right and good. With such praise, a young fool might be misled to preach what the people want to hear, as nearly all false prophets do, who look for the approval of men rather than that of God. They accept honor and preach what is paid for. Where their pay ends, there also ends their preaching. These were of a kind characterized by Christ when he says of them that they like to be called rabbi. Because they are so foolish, they think he also likes to be tricked and can be befooled by servile adulations surrendering himself to their own prongs and their death thrusts before he would be aware of any danger. But the saying is true, the Lord will have them in derision. It's not an uncommon thing for one man to deceive another, but no trickery will avail with Christ. He understands the wiles of men and can entrap them in their own devices. So here he compels these hypocrites to speak plain truth, although they have many other things in their hearts, and thus perfectly puts them to shame. It is indeed true that he teaches the way of God right, and he fears nobody, while not one of his enemies speaks from the heart. Lips may utter truth that amounts to nothing but lies. Christ's words, rather, are true. However, they may twist them. They judge him by themselves and represent him as a disturber of the peace who would rob God of his tribute money and rally the populace around him in rebellion while he's afraid to make such declaration in public. That is their design and scheme, but they veil it under the words, Thou teachest the way of God in truth. Praise not to be condemned so far as it goes, Caiaphas the high priest acted in like manner when he said, It's expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. That also was a true declaration fitting them while they dissembled as to their heart's sentiments. They did not believe that the Romans would come but were intent on putting Christ out of the way, thinking they would then fare better. Yet it happened to them, even as they had prophesied, that Christ had to die for the people, and the Romans did despoil them of their land and nation. That's the lot of those who would deceive and mock God. They mock themselves and come to grief. They seek a teacher of truth, and they find such in him against their wish. For... He hits them on the head with truth in a manner that makes them real in confusion. They wish to submit a puzzling question to him, not about the law and matters of salvation, but one that is unnecessary and insidious. The word insidious is awaiting a chance to entrap. It's also uh, like in a disease, it's a gradual developing so gradual as to be well established before common becoming apparent.
They pass by the whole Pentateuch and what pertains to God's word and way of truth and catch on something calculated to confuse him. Moses has not instructed us about giving tribute, nor had Christ anything to do with that. There, think they, we have him securely as between two spears. Does he say yes, and we accuse him as one who would rob God, who holds heresy, and as an apostate Jew, teaches contrary to Moses and the prophets? If on the other hand he says, Nay, we will know what to do, for the servants of Herod are at hand, he must fall into the hands of these tempters, or into those of the rabble, but either case he's lost, indeed he must fall into the hands of both, and surely die, for there is no escape possible in either yea or nay, represented by the two classes of people, Jews and Gentiles. Was not that plan shrewdly enough? Who could escape such a dilemma with gauntlets on both sides? They themselves would have failed to extricate themselves in a similar predicament. But the wise people met with a wisdom they neither knew nor looked for. It was divine wisdom. Christ seizes the spear and club in their hands and turns their weapons against themselves answering neither yea nor nay, but compelling them to give an answer which indicts themselves. There he is, the master, as they had greeted him. He proves that he can answer their slippery interrogations by themselves. They are thus obliged to run the gauntlet and are caught in the net with which they had planned to catch him. As if in a playful mood, Christ has them show him the tribute money to start with and asks whose stamp and superscription it bears. In that childlike way, he may have made the impression that he did not know or was not able to read so that they concluded, we have him surely now. He's afraid and wants to dissemble in favor of Caesar, not daring to say a word against him. Instead of that, he takes a word from their lips, making them admit they are caught. They must confess it and cannot do otherwise than say, It is Caesar's. With that answer, he turns the conclusion against them. If the currency and its image is Caesar's, also the superscription, then you have my thanks for saying, Yea, yourselves, to the question you put at me. Why need you bother me with a matter that you can settle so readily? This is truly digging a pit for others and falling in yourself, setting a trap and being caught in it. Christ makes use of the same dialectics in answering others who would impugn his character and entraps them where they meant to entrap him. To impugn is to assail by words or arguments, attacked as false or lacking integrity. As we read in Luke 19, 21 and 22, where a servant had buried the pound entrusted to him in a napkin, saying, 
I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down and reapest that thou didst not sow. He saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? Luther says, That is, be it as thou hast said, because thou regardest me to be an austere man, taking what I had not laid down. Therefore it serves thee right that thou shouldst be treated in that way. Thy pound be taken from thee as from one who compels me to be austere and strict with them. I give this as a caution that people may learn to take heed and not trifle with holy things. For men can be deceived, but those who try to deceive God only deceive themselves. I have often said that God acts towards man even as man is disposed. As thou thinkest and believest concerning him, such he is to thee. The servant of whom we speak did not have an austere and severe man for his master. On the contrary, he was treated, treated kindly and justly. But since he had pictured him that way, he must learn how it feels. It's the same with our belief or unbelief. If our hearts picture him as gracious or angry, pleasant or harsh, we have him that way. God is not to be mocked. Those who regard him as angry toward them will find him so. But whoever can say, I know that he will be a gracious father to me and forgive my sins, they'll have that experience with him as well. There must, however, be no hypocrisy, no dissembling, as if the lips should say one thing and the heart thinks the opposite. Since then, these people call him master, and a teacher of truth, although they do not believe what they say and simply try to catch and deceive him in his words, he turns the matter to their discomfiture and gives them an unexpected proof of what their lips profess, like as if we were to regard him wrongfully as an ungracious and angry God. We would so experience him, for it is, as he says, out of thine own heart will I judge thee. Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, rather. And again, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. That would serve us right and be just. Why dost thou not look him straight in the eyes and judge him as what he is? believest on him as he reveals himself in his word, namely as a teacher and savior of all who are burdened with sin and desire to be godly. If such an ideal does not suit thee, and thou formest a different one, thou must take what thou hast provided for thyself. This is the experience these plotters make. Their words pronounce him to be a teacher of truth, yet in their hearts they are false. However, he is a real teacher to them and exposes their knavery and hypocrisy. Christ is a good doctor. Such physicians as clearly understand the disease must be commended 
They can help a patient so much better than one who simply experiments on the case. He soon learns what knaves they are, but since they call a master as if they would learn of him, they must hear what they do not expect, namely, if I am a master and teacher of truth, I'll tell you truly what you see and seek. You are hypocrites in my judgment, that put in plain language means you are deceitful fellows. They deserve this, first, because they're not pious at all. Secondly, because they cover up and decorate their falseness by making a pretense of virtue before the people. You are double hypocrites. You do not seek the way of God nor the truth, yet you flatter me as teaching such to make yourself appear holy. And because you will not hear the truth that can save you, you must hear truth that shall reveal your hypocrisy and condemn it. For I am, as you say, a teacher of truth. To some that signifies life, to others death and damnation, according as their respective faith and hearts may be. Therefore I tell you plainly and truly what you are inwardly, what you are inwardly, namely hypocrites and desperate rogues who are beyond help and advice and who belong to the devil. But those who are godly and would like to be so, to them I say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Behold, thus they find the right teacher of truth, not to their salvation, however, which they do not seek, but to their condemnation. They are enemies to the truth and do not like to hear such preaching, yet they must hear it as if from their own lips, answering their question themselves to their own exposure, as already explained. After this exposure and reproof of their impudence, silencing them with their own answer, the master continues, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Let the child be baptized, that its name become known. In other words, you want to take away from Caesar what is his, and have already taken from God what is his. You therefore are rebels and blasphemers. You take and withhold, and not even question your own dishonesty, or manifest a purpose to do what is right. That is indeed and rightly called disloyalty, where one refuses to give to Caesar what he can claim as his own. This truth they must hear from this teacher of truth, however much it may displease them to be so sternly rebuked. They hate to be called thieves and robbers, as if they were disposed to despoil the emperor, Caesar of his authority, belongings, usurp the rights of their superiors under a pretense of justice, for which they deserve punishment in body and estate as twofold rebels. This is the first thought. Secondly, just as they've been shown to be thieves and robbers toward the state, they are summarily similarly guilty of robbing God. They withhold what is God's and even claim to be right by doing so. The prophet Jeremiah 23.11 calls those who do not preach God's word in God's name profaners, as withholding it from the people for whom it was given, they rob and take, not from God in heaven, but from the people to whom God sent 
commanded it to be given and give them something else instead of it. Thus they profane and rob God, withholding the honor and obedience they owe him. Such fruits they are, these smart saints, who wish to bring Christ in reproach, exclamation. It is on that account that they must bear the rebukes administered to them and be exposed as God-thieves who deserve capital punishment. Let us now pay attention to the hypocrites of our day, those prudish pietists, bishops, and the Pope's whole coterie of clerics. Coterie is an intimate, exclusive group of persons with a unifying common interest or purpose. That word is spelled C-O-T-E-R-I-E. -E. Fancy. It comes from the French language. It comes like from a cot or a hut. We would say a hut in English. Let's back up now to the beginning of that sentence. Let's now pay attention to the hypocrites of our day, those prudish pietists, bishops, and popes' whole coterie of clerics who persecute Christ and his followers in that they reject and condemn his word and the acknowledged truth of the gospel. Christ rightfully calls them robbers and profaners of God and of Caesar. They are obedient neither to God nor to the true Christian church, neither to the state nor to any constituted authority, but would be lords themselves and live and do as they like, none daring to oppose them. They are disobedient in person and also assault innocent Christians, devour and kill whom they can and would destroy God's kingdom completely, yet they wish to be well spoken of as being in their right, being obedient, pious and peaceable, regarding us as heretics and sinners against God and Christendom and against the powers that be, who therefore deserve death. Just like these in the gospel, who would give neither to God nor to Caesar, pretend to great piety while they seek to put Christ out of the way as one teaching what is opposed to religion and to patriotism. But how if the will should reverse itself and throw the guilt? which they now heap on us Christians upon their own heads, so that they receive the reward due to the openly condemned rebels and god-thieves who profane the majesty of both divine and human right. True, neither the gospel nor Christ himself makes use of physical punishment, yet they should beware lest others come, and I fear very much that such will be the case who will handle them roughly, teaching them as others have been taught, they must cease to persecute Christians. This would be treating them after their own fashion. The Pope, with all his apostles, disciples, lawyers, and theologians, teaches, violence need not be endured. That is, open violence may be repelled by force. They say what Christ teaches in Matthew 5.39 is not a duty but simply counsel and no one is bound by it. Namely, Christ says, 
I say unto you, Resist not him that is evil. But whosoever smiteth thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, and so forth. Their interpretation of this has a sanction of all high schools, institutions, and monasteries. It can be found in all their books, nor do they hesitate to praise and justify it, holding that no one is obliged to take wrong even from the emperor, but that it is right to resist evil and strike back in defense, self-defense. Let it hit Caesar or whom it may. It, therefore, is not wrong, according to their own teaching, to resist such unsufferable injury by force. I would not lament so very much if, as a punishment from God, it should come about through some false preacher or rabble leader that such tyrants were killed. For they are intent on disorder. Their teachings and doings instigate uprisings and war, while they throw the blame on us who teach righteousness hold the government in honor, and oppose conspiracy by word and deed. They would gladly kill us, although they fail in their loyalty. They want to be honored and self-guarded in their mischief, so that no harm may befall them. The popes with their followings have taught thus not only, but they also practice it by their acts, opposing kings and emperors as it suits them despising all authority and trampling the law under their feet, even claiming divine right for their doings. They would do the same now if they could, boasting that they are in supreme authority and owe allegiance to no ruler. If they should, allow, if they should now allow such doctrine to be preached among them, as I myself could do if I were so mindful to avenge myself, may God forbid it, or the public would take such teachings from their books and statutes, and a general uprising should follow. Whom would they have to blame, and who could reason otherwise, and that it served them right? Why are they so desperate and perverse that they reproach Christ with his teachings as seditious and blaspheme him who is their Lord, while they themselves are rebels and profaners of God? They disseminate and defend such godless and seditious teachings and persecute us who preach the pure gospel, as they well know, and with all faithful ones resist and preach against disloyalty and disorder. They themselves must acknowledge, if they would or could do so, in their concealed malice, that they owe it to no other source than to our preaching that they so far so long a time have been and are yet secured against rebellion, for if it had not been for us, they might have had some different experiences. By their teaching, they could not maintain nor enforce peace, favoring uprisings as it does their teaching, and if I could approve of it, I would not trust myself to advocate or at least wink at any resistance of their adherence in self-protection by force. But we will neither teach nor allow that Christ's words are nothing more than counsel. We teach that Christians must suffer wrong, if needs be, and leave vengeance to God. They are to be what the scriptures call them in Psalm 44:22, sheep for the slaughter, who may expect 
death every hour of the day. Papists know full well that they are safe in our presence. They show their gratitude by persecuting, devouring, and murdering us unceasingly till we are entirely done for. But may it not also happen that in so doing they will meet with such as will defend their rights against them, give them their due so richly deserved, thus paying for what injury they have done to the gospel and to us. Their doom is sealed. For the present we must suffer and leave to God how and when he will avenge us. The punishment they deserve is in God's hand to be meted out in his own time and manner. Although they pretend to be afraid of us, we will do them no harm, allowing them to imitate the Pharisees over against the common people who adhere to Christ. Others will give them what they fear from us, as did the Romans to those who opposed and suspected Christ and his adherents, giving them their full reward when they believed themselves secure. That's the way these will fare in time. They are afraid, though they know that we have attempted nothing to their hurt, nor do we now do so. We offer them peace and uphold peace, exhorting and teaching our people and the public generally to abstain from disloyal acts. We will not stain our hand with their blood. That's something we do not wish to be guilty of. We glory in our innocence over against them before all the world and will not implicate ourselves in their downfall. But others shall arise who will visit upon them what is written of that class of people in the Bible. As for instance, in Proverbs 10:24, the fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him. And as Christ expresses it in Matthew 12:37, for by thy words thou shalt be justified. Thou hast complained of disloyal loyalty, disloyalty shall be thy portion. We will then say Amen, and Dio gratias, thanks to God, besides. Let it be said on this text to those who would reproach Christ in order to promote their own reputation and standing, so that they may see and learn what sort of a truth teacher he is, exposing their lies and falsehood, fastening on them what they like to accuse him of being as being real liars and murderers or misleaders and rebels. They insist on such a course but endeavor to throw the suspicion on Christ and his adherents, spite of the fact these are and teach the very opposite. But we must keep this word before our eyes. Is our rule of conduct toward the two kingdoms, God's and Caesar's, so that we may give to each the honor due him as both of divine order and example. That in both there are many who are not God-fearing, who abuse their charge and position committed to them, especially toward Christians, persecuting us as disobedient and disloyal, we admit, but it does not disturb us. We must and are willing to suffer this same time we maintain our right to punish them by word of mouth, telling them the truth and hurling back the accusations heaped upon us. In so doing we satisfy justice and fulfill our duty. The rest we commit to God, how and by whom he may want to avenge us. 
We have said much about the teaching now of Christ's answer, for it is a doctrine we insist on that the two powers or governments, gods and Caesars, or spiritual and temporal kingdoms, must be kept apart. As Christ does here in a clear and brief declaration, make any distinction, not only, but also illustrating finally how each is to be constituted and administered, when he says, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he refers to the relation of subjects to their rulers. The other part, render unto God the things that are God's, is especially intended for such as are in authority. For it is thus ordained of God that subjects must and shall give to their rulers what they need when he commands them to give. It's implied that these may take and where we are to give what is due, there we infer that we owe them something, so that the language might be to return rather than simply to render or give. That is, something for subjects under civil authority. On the other hand, there are restrictions placed upon rulers, that they govern in the same spirit, and not take from their subjects what is not due them. But remember to give and do also what they are in duty bound to do by virtue of their presiding over countries and nations, that they may grow and prosper. That's why they were elevated by God to their respective positions of honor, not that they sit there simply as place thieves and doing what they like. But if that were emphasized, it would be found that the world is full of real thieves and rogues rulers as well as subjects, and the number would indeed be small, from the highest to the lowest, to obey and do what is right. Subjects are most generally so disposed as to cheat their ruler and appropriate to their own use what is his, wherever they can, say nothing about giving cheerfully, hesitating as they may do to admit that, Princes and officeholders wish to have the name of being Christians and obedient subjects of the emperor, yet they do only what suits them, and if they could, they would gladly usurp the places of their superiors. The same is true of the knights who wait upon and assist the princes. If they could do so, they would gladly confiscate everything, strip their chiefs of what they have, and trample them underfoot. Instead, they take villages and castles, delight in being called dear subjects, advise and govern in their own interests, thus reveling, oppressing, and plaguing both lords and subjects according to their sweet will. By the way, how many princes and office holders are there now in high positions who could claim that they give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Would not all rather fill their own coffers, bags, and pockets? This all men can do, but giving to Caesar what belongs to him is difficult to find. Taking and stealing from him is much more common. There is a similar state of things in all other situations and offices. Servants deceiving and cheating their masters, maids their mistresses, day laborers and mechanics, those for whom they work. It is so in daily intercourse, at the market and elsewhere stealing and robbing, even boldly and openly, is the common practice. In that way things go on among high and low, so 
that there is no royal residence, no city, no house that is not full of knaves and thieves. Were the world plagued with this sin only, it were also too much. And it deserved to have been destroyed long ago. And yet no one wants to be charged with and punished for theft. The evildoers would rather claim honor for their misconduct, especially is that the case with the lords of the nobility who strut around in glittering chains. If they were treated as they deserve, they would not be allowed to wear them on the streets, but would be dealt with as those who stole five or six dollars. It is here as the saying goes, little thieves are hung in iron chains. The big public thieves are permitted to walk about with chains of gold. It, it should not be thus, but everyone respects his estate and position, and they do as it behooves them. Yea, sayest thou, is it not enough that I take nothing from anybody? Yea, truly, but there are many ways of taking, not only from under the bench where there is nothing that belongs to thee, nor out of the bag or chest of another, but also where thou art unfaithful to thy employer, permittest damage to ensue because of thy negligence or mischief, rather than in the consequence of a mistake. As, for instance, were a citizen or neighbor overcharges another, and the nobleman flitches and squeezes. According to the seventh commandment, all such sharp dealing is called stealing and doing wrong. Those who practice it are thieves who care nothing for a troubled conscience. And the maxim, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, becomes a rare bird. All the world is full of perversity taking from Caesar the things that are Caesar's, from the bottom up, from servant up to knights and princes, so that there is no estate on earth so plagued with thieves and rogues as that of the emperors and governments. Government must also be told how to act toward its subjects. Those in authority also rob and take what's not theirs, and that on the responsibility of their superiors. When an emperor or prince goes on plaguing land and people with unnecessary assessments and other burdens, in that situation thou must also hear the text. Thou desirest the subjects to put into practice their lesson and be honest with thee. Thou must also avoid taking from them what is not thine. For Christ does not say here, Render to Caesar that which he wants and likes. But he assigns limits to him how far he may reach, that is, the things that are Caesar's, he says, what he is rightfully entitled to. Therefore, land, cities, and homes are not to be governed as the one in authority over them may like, as if an emperor could treat his employees to suit his notion, contrary to the Lord's justice. Nay, the employee would say, I owe thee what is thine, not what thou mayest desire to have. One might require so much as my head or fist, or he would not pay me wages or food and clothing, and so plunder and plague me as not to leave a rag upon my body. That would be taking the rights from the manservant and her property from the maidservant. So also, if a burgomaster, ruler, or officeholder should compel and plague the people to serve his whims, that could not be regarded as a lordly right but would be stealing and doing wrong. 
just as much as if a fellow citizen should steal from them. However, there is no position nowadays so insignificant but that its occupant should not desire to have the right and power to do and command what he pleases, studying how he may oppress the people and holding that his authority empowers him to squeeze, drive, and torment everybody as he pleases. Even as is now the case more especially with the poor clergymen and preachers, so that there is danger in all the states, especially in the higher ones, for in them the really great thieves are to be found. A house servant may make a householder poor by his dishonesty, but a nobleman can steal what amounts to something, namely, namely a whole principality, land and people. Therefore we must tell them how Christ has limited their prerogatives in this text so that they may not do what they might personally wish. It would go entirely too far and the Pope's rule would go into effect, they being flogged by their subjects. But we neither teach nor approve of such practice. Christ does not say de facto sed de jure not by fact but by right, that is, he teaches what each man must do, namely the subjects must give and the government must not take what is not due, but who is to punish where both parties sin against the law is not stated here. Now it's time to turn the tape over. Christ does not do as the Pope teaches that one should hit back, nor does he allow anyone to avenge himself, neither the emperor nor his employee. The infliction of punishment and judgment he reserves for himself as the highest Lord and God. Vengeance is mine, saith God. He who does not give heed to this teaching will experience this judgment. If God does not punish by the ordinary authorities, he will do it by pestilence, war, revolutions, and other plagues, or he can punish rulers as well as their subjects. Therefore both are instructed as to their duty, and we will abide by his declaration. We must not and will not course anyone by violent measures, but say only what is right and resist wrongdoing by word of mouth. Whoever will not mind that, we excommunicate such and one in accordance with Christ's teaching, telling him that he belongs to the devil and let him go. Others may punish the Pope and his followers who will not abide by the word of God but resort to violence. This is a brief statement as to the first the state or government, both in its higher and its lower functions, to show how far we are away from our troops position and how full the world is everywhere of thievery. But these matters are worst of all. If one is to expound this passage, render to God what is God's, and speak of God thieves in the spiritual government of Christendom, in which I and the likes of me are. For as high as heaven is above the earth, so dangerous and difficult is this office in comparison with the secular or imperial positions which indeed are also dangerous where their occupants do not call upon God for help to discharge their duties properly without injury to their subjects. 
But if unfaithful ministers or preachers get into their office, they will be not thieves of bread, meat, or clothing, wherewith the body is nourished, and with which jurists busy themselves, who teach nothing rather than what ministers to the belly, and try to check that class of stealing. But those who occupy the office, that is, to give the bread of eternal life to souls, and instead cause the word by which man is nourished from death to life, such are not simply belly thieves, but thieves of God and of the heavenly kingdom. Such now is the Pope with his bishops, all their retinue, who do not preach the people, rather preventing them from receiving God's word and what it gives and affords, doing their very best in mischief when they forbid and hinder the sacrament to be administered under both forms as Christ instituted it. They well know in sheer violence and blasphemous thirst they cannot rightly be called anything else than sacrilegious public thieves of God, robbers of his word and sacrament. There are many among us also, some who sell plague and press the poor pastors with hunger and care, that they cannot do their work properly, some also lowering their calling so as to reach out for the heavenly things, and at the same time hanker after carnal goods, as the cliques of Pope and priest also do, who are charged with spiritual matters, but do not preach them, nor suffer it to be done. They practice two kinds of robbery, and deserve all the more severe punishment. Yet the world is just as full of this miserable dishonesty as of the secular sort. And they are thieves through and through, from top to bottom, from the least to the greatest. But how will it be in the end when the final judgment shall take place? What does it mean that God must continue to call and preach, render both to God and to Caesar, but all in vain, should thus be mocked and his word trampled underfoot? Are we not to expect that at last there should rain upon the world a flood with thunder, lightning, and hellfire? cannot and must not be otherwise, because the trespass against God's and Caesar's right continues so boldly, so eagerly, turns the single into a double robbery, ever defending its course and resisting its punishment. God will and cannot suffer that forever. I would that he might take us and ours away in mercy so that we be spared the coming calamity. Wickedness is so very great and so manifold in the whole world that it exceeds the leaves on the trees and the blades of grass upon the earth in number. May God preserve and deliver us from this distress and grant grace that we may hold to his word in earnestness and be delivered from such evil. Amen. Now, page 326. 24th Sunday after Trinity, text is Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. 
for she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good cheer. Thy faith has made thee whole. The woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. They laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. Fame thereof went abroad into all that land. Now, page 228. And this here sermon is not found in the C edition. It says, Dear friends, you know that the gospel is nothing else than a sermon about one person who is called Christ although there are many other books written here and there and many sermons preached by many different persons both about the heathen and the christians yea also about the mother of god saint peter angels and many of the saints yet they are not gospels for this alone is a true gospel which sets before us christ teaches the good things we may hope from him of course, there is also at times something in the Gospel on John the Baptist, Mary, and the Apostles, but this is not properly the Gospel, for they are taken into consideration so as more perfectly to indicate whence Christ came and what his office is. So Luke relates the history of John the Baptist from the beginning, his conception and birth, and that of the Virgin Mary, all which is written not for their sake, only for the sake of the one person, Christ. So that everything written in the gospel concerns this person, Christ, alone. In St. Paul's epistles, there's nothing written about the saints. All there is is about Christ alone. The evangelists describe what miracles and wonders Christ performed, and they write nothing of the works of John or Mary, but only what Christ did, how he helped the people in body and soul, and how the people clung to him. For God has decreed it his will that all should cling to the one man, Christ, to hope in him and hold fast to him if they would be saved. Thus they know nothing of anyone besides Christ, who alone has been presented unto us by God as our mercy seat, St. Paul writes in Romans 3.25 that God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness and so forth. Hitherto, one has clung to this saint, another to that. One has had Mary, another Saint Barbara, and there have been manifold sects and orders. No one cared anything for Christ except for the name. We've had many mediators, all of whom we abandon and hold now only to Christ. Therefore, St. Paul says in Romans 1, 2, that the gospel was promised by God through the prophets concerning his son. He insists upon it so very strongly that nothing avails in the gospel except the one only person, Jesus Christ. He who knows this may well thank God that he knows where to place his comfort, help and confidence, 
he will then despise and cast away all sermons about other persons. For this reason the Lord is pictured to us in today's gospel, mingling among the people, drawing all the world unto himself by his friendliness, comforting doctrine, so that they may cling to him with their hearts, depending upon his goodness, and hope to receive from him both spiritual and temporal treasures. Nor do you see him take anything from those he heals and helps. Yes, or yea, he receives nothing from them but scorn and mockery, as we shall hear. Good deeds proceed from him, but he receives mockery and scorn in return. Now this is preached and submitted to the whole world, that they may learn to know this man aright, and to know how to become Christians not how to become good and innocent. Other doctrines outside of the gospel, like the books of the heathen masters, insist that the people should through them become good. Again, the legends of the saints especially insist that the people are to live as the saints live. To make good people does not belong to the gospel, for it only makes Christians. It takes much more to be a Christian than to be pious, person can easily be pious, but not a Christian. Christian knows nothing to say about his piety, for he finds in himself nothing good or pious. And if he is to be pious, he must look for a different piety, piety in someone else. To this end, Christ is presented to us as an inexhaustible fountain, who at all times overflows with pure goodness and grace. For such goodness and kindness, he accepts nothing except that the good people who acknowledge such kindness and grace thank him for it, praise and love him, although others despise him for it. This is what he reaps from it. So one is not called a Christian because he does much, but because he receives something from Christ, draws from him and lets Christ only give to him. If one no longer receives anything from Christ, he is no longer a Christian. So that the name Christian continues to be based only on receiving and not on giving and doing, and he receives nothing from anyone except from Christ alone. If you look at what you do, you've already lost the Christian name. It's indeed true that we are to do good works, help, advise, give to others, but no one is called a Christian by reason of that, nor is he on that account a Christian. Therefore, if you wish to consider the word in its true meaning, you must identify a Christian by the fact that he only receives something from Christ and has Christ within him. For this is what the word properly means. Just as a person is called white because of his white color, black because of his dark color, large because of his size, so also one is called a Christian because of Christ, who dwells in him and from whom he receives his blessings. So if one is called a Christian because of Christ, he certainly then not called a Christian because of his works. From this it also follows that no one is called a Christian by reason of his good works. If this be true, as it undoubtedly is, 
then it must follow that our orders and sects do not belong under the Christian name, and they do not develop Christians. Therefore they are deceivers, all who preach or teach in the church, and occupy themselves with commandments, works, and statutes that accomplish nothing. Although they pretend to be Christians, nevertheless they still under this name attempt to burden and torment us with their commands and works. By reason of my works, I may well be called one who fasts, one who prays, pilgrim, so forth, but not a Christian. If you were to weave all your works together and add to them all the works of others beside, you would still not have Christ. From these things you could not be called a Christian. Christ is something different and higher than law and the commandments of men. He is a son of God who is ready alone to give and not to receive. If I am so wise as to take what he offers, I have him. If I have him, I am then justly called a Christian. Thus you have the distinction as to what a Christian is and what Christ is. Now this gospel teaches us that Christ is the greatest and highest person, renowned in all the world, not in order to terrify the people, but to pour out all earthly and heavenly gifts, so that all men may depend upon and trust in him, continually receive from him alone what they need. If sin terrifies my conscience, and preachers of the law come and want to help me with their works, they will accomplish nothing. Christ alone can help here, and no one else. Yea, the others only make it worse, even if they were Peter or Paul, or even Mary, the mother of God herself. Christ alone can do this, being ordained of God to the end that he should send forth the good news, in which is proclaimed how my sins are to be forgiven gratuitously, without any work or merit on my part, only and simply out of pure grace through faith, in this Christ. If now I accept what is preached, I have a comfort that my sins are forgiven me before God and before the world. If I at heart hold fast to this, then I am a Christian. And for this I thank God through Christ, who at all times gives me his Holy Spirit and grace, that sin may not harm me, either here or at the day of judgment. If I fear death and do not like to die, I find in this Christ a comfort and medicine, so that I care nothing for death. If terrified at the anger of God, I have here a mediator. Many a one runs into the desert or puts on garments of coarse hair and thinks he'll force God not to be angry with him, but it will amount to nothing. Whoever has not this Christ, on him the wrath of God remaineth forever, for it is so decreed. Therefore, whoever would have a joyful conscience that does not fear sin, death, hell, or the wrath of God, dare not reject this mediator, Christ, for he is a fountain that overflows with grace, that gives temporal and eternal life. Only open thy heart and hold it forth, and you will receive all. He gushes and flows forth, and can do nothing else but only give, flow, and gush forth, if you can only believe it. You justly deserve that people should call you a Christian when you are called a Christian by virtue of what you receive from Christ. If not, and you want to give him so much, you are no Christian. This is a rich 
precious word which St. Paul praises so highly and can never sufficiently praise that he so graciously gives us his Son to pour out his grace over all who receive it. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32 He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. Galatians 3.26 Ye are all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. From this it further follows, when a Christian does good works and shows love to his neighbor, that he does not thereby become a Christian or pious, but before this is done he must have been a Christian and pious. He indeed does good works, but his good works do not make him a Christian. The tree brings or yields good fruit, but the fruit does not make the tree good. So also here, no one becomes a Christian through his works, but through Christ. From this you understand what kind of people Christians are and what their kingdom is, namely that they are a multitude that cling to Christ, have one spirit, and the same faith with him. And through this all Christians are equal, and no one has any more of Christ than another. St. Peter is no more than the thief on the cross, Mary, the mother of God, is no more than the sinner, Mary Magdalene. In external acts and works, of course, there is a difference among them, for the Virgin Mary had a greater work to do than Mary Magdalene, St. Peter a greater work than the thief on the cross. This is a case when we reckon according to works, but by virtue of our works we are not Christians. Virgin Mary is not a Christian on account of her great work that she bore in her body, Christ, such a costly and inexpressible treasure, as Christ himself said to the woman, Luke 11, 28, 27 and 28, who cried aloud among the people to the Lord, Blessed is the body that bore thee, and the breast which thou hast sucked. Christ said, Yes, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Here you see exalts believers above his mother. For Christians are called Christians because they believe in Christ. Jesus didn't only say, Yea, blessed are they, and so forth. He said, Yea, rather blessed are they to hear the word of God and keep it. For Christians are called Christians because they believe in Christ. Virgin and Mother are two very beautiful names, but they are nothing in comparison to the name of the believers or Christians. Again, St. Paul is so proud that in his epistle to the Galatians 2, 6, he gives the office of the great and high apostles, a reputation which amounts to little before God, except as it brings a blessing and is of service to others. It says here, it says in there, Galatians 2, 6, But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. And says, For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, and so forth. Therefore we are all alike through faith in Christ. Although St. Peter has a stronger faith than I, it is still the same faith in Christ, for his father offers his son Christ to the promiscuous crowd. Whoever receives him gets the whole Christ, whether in weakness or in strength. It makes no difference. 
woman in this gospel had been sick for a long time, lays hold of Christ as well as Mary the Virgin, his mother did. Therefore, Christians have the same spirit. One is as high-born as another. St. Peter must call me his brother, and I can also call him my brother. Yea, Christ receives us unto himself and holds us as his brothers. As after his resurrection he said to Mary Magdalene, Go unto my brethren and tell them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. St. Paul calls Christ the firstborn among many brethren. Of this he speaks very beautifully in his first epistle to the Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, where he speaks of weak brethren in this way. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. The summary of this entire gospel is that we learn to know Christ aright, and not only that we have the mere name, but know that we have all things from him. We are Christians, we have all things, and God is our Father. We are lords of all things in heaven and on earth. This no work of ours can bring to pass, be it as great and costly as it may. Now. You see how far they are from the Christian name, they who live under the dominion of the Pope. The gospel preaches nothing but the one person Christ, not even Mary, much less Pope or any work. Be it as costly as it can, it must offer Christ alone and no one else whom God the Father has sent among us, only that we should draw all from him and wait for his grace and goodness. Now, when they preach to you Christ as a judge, how he is to appear on a judgment day, and how you should do many good works, that he may reward you for them, and you agree to this, then he will indeed be a judge to you, and not a savior. And if he thus be presented to you, as people are accustomed to paint his mother, showing him her breasts, this is actually to preach the devil, and not Christ only gives but receives nothing. It's indeed true, when you've received from him, then good works will follow themselves without force or demand, and this is represented to us very beautifully in today's gospel also. For here you see, Christ preaches the gospel to the people. Now, preaching is no insignificant work, for here he does us a great service, in that he becomes our teacher and instructs us how we may come to the knowledge of himself. This is a part of his great grace and kindness. While he is here on earth, he does not cease to teach, so that we may receive him as our Savior and Redeemer. Afterwards, he follows us with his good works, which he manifests everywhere to everyone as he needs. You find no one in the gospel who ever asks anything of the Lord whose help was denied and not given. Many as came to him, blind, deaf, lame, palsied, and dropsical, he received and helped all as they desired, and healed them from all diseases, as St. Luke says. 
that all the multitude sought to touch him, for power came forth from him and healed them all. Thus he does also to this woman. The woman hears him preach, perceives that he is good, an indulgent man who appears friendly toward all the world. Then she also began to cleave to him and take courage to think, because he cast none away from him, she too was welcome to enjoy his friendship and goodness. Therefore she lets all the apostles go, and she casts her heart's trust and confidence only on the Lord, and says to herself, If I do but touch his garment, I shall be made whole. Only see what a heart the woman had. Hers is indeed a noble, great faith and confidence. She did not think otherwise in her heart than that he would certainly help her if she only touched his garment with her hand. Yet she is not so bold as to approach him openly. She regards herself as unworthy to speak to him or look at him, for she knows that she deserves nothing, neither did anything for the Lord. Therefore she so plans as to approach him from behind, falls down at his feet, and merely touches the hem of his garment. There is nothing but mere awkwardness and unworthiness here. Who had merited that the Lord should permit the gospel to be preached to these people? There is no preparation, no work. Yet the poor woman is there and hopes to obtain great things from the Lord, that he would release her from her sickness. She had had an issue of blood for about twelve successive years. How could she earn anything under such circumstances, or how could she, because of her disease, be worthy of anything? Of course she was worthy, but only to receive and not to give, for at that time she was not able to give the least thing. And this is a true preparation for the grace and goodness of Christ, that I feel my need of it. And then it harmonizes beautifully that the two meet together, the rich and the poor, Christ and the sinner. Yet it is a great art to persuade people that they are poor and in need of grace. It's a difficult matter, nor does the devil permit it to be done, but only diverts the people to their good works, that they may under no circumstances receive the idea that they stand in need of the grace and mercy of Christ. The text says a wretched woman had the issue of blood for twelve years, and to cure it had spent all her living upon doctors. The more she spent for this purpose, the worse she became. Luke and Mark both especially refer to this, show thereby that the more the law and works are preached, the worse it becomes among us. We receive nothing from it but one harm and injury after another. Conscience can never be quieted by our good works. When one sin is expelled from the conscience, another soon enters. Yea, the medicine and the work often make a sin, even, where otherwise there is none, until we come to Christ, as this woman here, who had been sick so long and would never have received help, had she never come to Christ, from whom she received her health without any work whatever. She gives him nothing and only receives from him and allows him to give. So it goes with all sermons that do not preach Christ. And it is here indicated that we must constantly employ the word and always exercise ourselves in the word without intermission. 
For such men we still find at all times who have like anxious and troubled consciences. For this woman signifies all poor consciences who have an issue of blood, that is, they feel their sins. The issue of blood flows continually and cannot cease, for flesh and blood does nothing but what they wish. Now when feeling gets the upper hand, the wretched people go to work and want to help themselves. Then one does this, another that, and none as yet has accomplished anything. Hence many orders and institutions have arisen because men have conjured up so many works that all of them can scarcely be named. What was the cause of all this? Nothing but the conscience tormented with sin that has so exercised and harassed us that we thought thereby to redeem our souls and be free from all sins. But Christ was not in it, because we only wished to give without receiving. Therefore it has ever become worse with us as with this woman, whom all the physicians endeavored to heal, but she never found anyone to help her. Thus, too, we have believed all the doctors, and if one came who had accomplished some little work, we welcomed him. Dear Lord, we were anxious to be well, were anxious to have a joyful conscience, and were anxious to be free from sin. The doctors are the preachers of the law and the lords over Christians. If one were very anxious to be free from sin, what did they do for him? They'd give him medicine, from which he only became weaker and sicker. This we have seen, and in part also felt a great deal, how to our great and real injury the people sought to be good by means of their own works, and thereby deliver themselves from sin. But it did no good. We only became more and more discouraged by sin and death, so that there were no more discouraged people to be found upon earth than just the priests, monks, nuns, and those who go about with their good works. If one had a boil, then the druggist had to work. There was a drugging, a going and a running, as though the soul would immediately pass away. Thus they were afraid and discouraged. No one fears the last judgment so keenly as just these very spiritual people. This they also beautifully show when they so treat of works that they always add one work to another and never constantly trust in any single work. The more they do, the worse they become, the more discouraged and unbelieving they become. And it is with them just as with this woman. It's quite a beautiful parable and is well adapted for our benefit. We have not only spent our temporal goods for this purpose, but we have also risked our lives with fasting, with castigation, with other unbearable burdens, so that one became insane over it, and lost all his reason, natural strength, finally their souls in the bargain. I've also been one of those, and have been caught deeper in this drug store than many others. I could not so quickly come to the point to cast to the winds the law of the Pope. It was a bitter and difficult task for me to eat meat on Friday and to conclude that the law and order of the Pope amounted to nothing. God help us, how difficult it was for me before I dared to do it. Therefore, one should become free from this in his conscience and despise the traditions of the Pope. 
to which he must indeed have a firm, strong foundation in faith. If he has not, then he will think several times before he takes the risk. And as it was with this woman who spent all her living upon the doctors, and even then was not made whole, yea, only became worse, so it is with us. Here all our works, cares, and labors are lost. Here all our human obedience and all our orders fall to the ground, and all we spent in that line was wholly lost. Now we see the laws and traditions of the Pope and bishops, that they are nothing before which we trembled and feared before. All this helped us just as much as did this poor woman who spent all her goods and possessions, yes, and also risked her life to this very end. Oh, what medicine and treatment this woman had to use. How tried, weak, and sick she often became from them. Yea, if she could have become well, she would have devoured the whole drugstore. But all availed nothing. She had to bear her sickness for twelve long years. But how was the poor woman at last helped? As soon as she approached the man called Christ and placed her hope and comfort in him, she became well. But who directed her to this man? Of course, the doctors didn't do it. For when our pastors preach Christ, the affairs of the Pope and all his traditions are overthrown. Who then told her? She heard it from someone who also had been healed, and that not by the doctors. He without doubt told her there is one who is called Jesus, who is a friendly, gracious man. He helps everyone, allows no one to go from his presence unassisted that he is sent from God just for the purpose of helping everyone. And many had told her who received help from him, so that they also brought her to him in that way. As a woman heard these things, she abandoned the doctors and went to Christ. So it takes place today. Christ is not preached, but only mere human works. Do this and do that. And in spite of this, the knowledge of Christ enters among the people. What we are to expect of him that he alone must do everything without our works and merit. When we hear this voice, we follow it and obey this word and let the physicians go for good, care no longer for the preachers of the law or works, or inquire about their commandments and traditions. But we go with all the desire of our heart to this man Christ and say, Yes, indeed, from this man we must receive it without any merit. Yea, how foolish I acted in that I ventured so much for it. May God bless thee, my dear Pope. May God bless you, my dear bishops, monks, and priests. I shall never need your medicine again, your work and merit, your commandments and traditions. You've martyred me too long with these things. I've found one who gives me all things freely that I in time past had to buy from you with piles of money. He gives it to me without any work or merit, whereas I before had to risk my body, strength, health, and life for it. Good night, farewell, I'll never come to you again. Thus one becomes a Christian, not by the decretals of the Pope, or by means of works and human traditions, but by the grace and kindness of Christ. Now, whoever has a troubled, distressed conscience, fears sin, is terrified at death, or otherwise experiences no good in himself, let him come hither to this man and confess what ails him. Call upon him, and he will most certainly help. 
pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge for us, and say to him, Behold, there here is an empty vessel that needs to be filled. Fill it, O Lord. I'm weak in faith. Strengthen me. I'm cold in love. Warm me. Make me burn, that my love may flow out to my neighbor. I have not a firm, strong faith. At times I doubt. Cannot wholly trust in thee. Alas, Lord, help me. Increase me. Increase in me my faith and trust. I have locked up treasure of all my goods in thee. I'm poor, but thou art rich, and hast mercy on the poor. I'm a sinner, but thou art righteous. In me is a river of sin, but in thee is all fullness and righteousness. If you once learn this, the laws of the Pope cannot take thee captive. From his laws and commands you receive nothing, but like this woman you spend everything you have, your body and goods, and at last your soul besides. And then you will say, I desire him from whom I can receive something, not him to whom I must give. The other Gospels write thus of this woman. When she became well, Jesus felt that a power had gone out of him and turned to the people and asked, Who is it that touched me? Then the disciples answered, Master, the multitudes press thee and crush thee. But the Lord was not satisfied with this and replied, Someone did touch me, for I perceive that power hath gone forth from me. I know someone has received something from me. The Lord did all this because this woman's faith was acceptable to him, which he desired to make known to all the people. For the Lord desires nothing more than that a man may trust and believe in him, and it was also done for the sake of the ruler to confirm his faith by this miracle and transaction. Therefore Mark writes thus, As the woman saw that the Lord knew it, she feared, and trembled, and came and cast herself at the feet of the Lord, and told him all in truth that was done to her by him. Then the Lord goes to work and absolves her, and says to her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. Are not these friendly words? What joy must not this woman have experienced as she permitted another to show her a kindness? This joy and peace all receive who look to this man for help. Now where this joy is, there its works must immediately follow, which prove this joy. So the peace and joy in this woman had to become manifest. For as soon as she received the good deed from the Lord, she confessed it before all the people, and was not ashamed to have it told that she received something from him, and yet gave nothing for it. This work and thanksgiving, however, God desires from us, namely that we confess and proclaim his kindness, grace, and good deeds before all men, so that others may also come and receive his benefits as this woman did. Thus my Christian life urges me to do good to others as God has done to me through Christ, only that thus Christ may become known. But thereby I do not become a Christian, just as this woman was not made whole by her knowledge, for she was well before all her work and knowledge, but after she becomes well she confesses Christ and praises him only for the good of others, goes and does good works one after the other. Thus we too live if we are only Christians.
in order that we may serve others wherever we can. Hence, as this woman became well before she did all her works, so we Christians must also become whole before we can do any good work. Now, Luther says that as the gospel is represented in this woman, so it is also represented to us in the daughter of the ruler. This ruler of the synagogue, whom Mark calls Jairus, had a strong faith and confidence in the Lord that he would raise his deceased daughter to life. For had he not had such a disposition of heart toward him, he would not have come to him and requested a thing of him which was by nature impossible. Therefore in this he shows his faith. When now the Lord observed the faith in him, he could not but do his will, and immediately arose and went with him. During his journey the history of this woman takes place, who had been sick for twelve years, as we have heard. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a tumult who were there in compliance with the law of Moses, blew with horns and trumpets, as in our country the bells are rung, to call people together, he commanded the people and the flute players to give place and said, The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. They laughed in the scorn. This means that when the preaching of the word goes forth thus, that Christ is the man who helps, and our works will not do it. Then the world cannot avoid it. It must laugh and scorn and be offended. For it's not acceptable to the world that Christ should help us, as the people do here who said without doubt, Alas, this is a grand master or doctor. What shall he help? For he does not know what it is to sleep or enter the grave. In this world, the gospel must have the reputation of being a foolish sermon, despised and scorned, for the devil cannot hear that this preaching is honored in the world, for it brings no advantage to his kingdom. This he feels, of course, and hence he attacks it with all cunning, so that he may hinder it and cause it to be worthless among his own followers, whose hearts he has entirely blinded and possessed, that the light of the gospel may not shine for them. For it is impossible that the preaching of Christ should not produce some fruit. It will not be preached in vain, although there be but few who receive it. It matters not. This is enough on today's gospel for the present. Let us call upon God for grace that we may take this in earnest and grasp it with our hearts. Amen. Now, I had to leave out a paragraph to get this all on the tape, but it just more or less was a repetition of the paragraphs which preceded, which talked about